Working long hours might be something you've always done, or perhaps that's just the type of person you are. But if you really examine your productivity, is it worth it? And can your approach be maintained without serious impact? From Sound Cartel, I'm Nicole Goodman, and this is Business Essentials Daily. If you spend money, you can always get more. But one thing you can never get back is your time. Once you've spent it, it's gone forever. So why do we spend so much of our days doing things that aren't enjoyable and aren't productive? Those are the questions that serial entrepreneur Steve Klaveski addresses in his new book, Time Rich, Do Your Best Work, Live Your Best Life. Steve is the founder of several ventures, including Collective Campus, a startup accelerator, and Lemonade Stand, a business school for kids. With so much on the go, who better to advocate the importance of getting more time back? Steve tells Chris Ashmore the book was born from his frustration about the way traditional business operates. I spent almost a decade in the corporate world, long hours, and I took that sort of culture into my entrepreneurial ventures. And I found myself working 12-hour days and signaling to the rest of the team that that's what you're supposed to do, setting a good example. But more often than not, I found by 3 p.m., I was pretty much spent. And if I was honest with myself, I was just anchoring to the past, these old ways of work where we conflated presence with productivity. As a result of that, we ran this two-week experiment, a nine-to-three workday. It forced us to do away with all the pointless stuff, the meetings. It forced us to automate and outsource rudimentary processes and just to be really diligent about getting into focus and flow. And by the end of that two weeks, we found we were just as productive. People were happier. They had more time for other things. I read an article about the experience for Harvard Business Review, which just blew up. It was syndicated by the Wall Street Journal, news.com.au, Tech in Asia, numerous others. And that's when I said, hey, maybe there's a book in this. Spoke to my publisher, Wiley, and they said, yeah, definitely. And here we are about two years later. Where does all this come from, the way we work? I mean, you write mm-hmm. in the book that there's a hang-up from the Industrial Revolution and the days of starting the factories and that kind of thing. And if we look at the eight-hour work week, for example, yeah. where did that come from? So if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, the 1700s is when it came about, there wasn't really OHS. There was no limit on the number of hours you could work. There was no limit on the minimum age. So you had kids as young as 10 years old crawling through coal mines. Like I said, no OHS. There's countless incidents of limbs being ripped off in these coal mines and no path for recourse, no insurance or anything like that. And it wasn't until 1850 that a textile manufacturer by the name of Robert Owen started lobbying for this eight hour workday. The slogan was eight hours rest, eight hours play, eight hours work. But it wasn't until 1937 that that was actually ratified into law in the United States by the Fair Labor Standards Act, as it stands today. But if you think about work back then, coal mines, assembly lines, conveyor belts in a farm, you could draw a direct line between hours and output, presence and productivity. But now work has changed so much, like it's more cognitive work, it's complex, the scope of our tasks has increased. And now, if I work 20 hours, it doesn't mean I'm getting 20 hours of output. We as human beings, when you're doing cognitive thinking work, you can only really get into that space of the zone or what psychologists call the flow state for about four or five hours. And beyond that, you hit the point of diminishing turns very, very quickly. But for whatever reason, 
we still haven't taken that fact and encoded it into the way we work. Mm. So organisation, I mean, we're still shackled from the past, I suppose, the past practices, but Mm -hmm. what other ways do you think organisations kill productivity today? Sure. So I wrote an article recently and it was called Why Organisations Run Like Crap. And the crap is essentially an acronym. So C being for consensus seeking. Every single decision that needs to get made, let's call a meeting. I've got a great example of some of our clients who will remain nameless. We'd run these corporate startup partnership programs and we'd develop a website for the program. And at the onset of this program, I'd speak to someone from their marketing team. They'd say, oh, here's a five-page brief. Fill this out. We'll schedule a time with our marketing team. We'll have that conversation. We'll come back to you two weeks later. And I'm like, this isn't going to work for me. Told my designer, hey, can you mark something up in an hour? Yep, here it is. Sent it over to them. They're like, "Uh, yeah, that'll do. But that's a microcosm of how things work in most large organizations. Just treating every single decision like it's this big decision to invest $20 million of capital somewhere, um, which is just not the case. So that's C. R is hyper-responsive. Like human beings constantly checking email, constantly checking Slack, constantly responding to anything coming in within five minutes, 10 minutes. But when you do that, you're not giving yourself the time to focus. A in crap is for availability. Hey, are you available for this meeting? Yes, I am. Don't worry about all my other priorities. Don't worry about the fact that I've already got an excessive workload. Yes, I am there because that's a culture we've created in our company where we just accept meeting invites. And then P for process paralysis, which if I need to get something done, I need to get several levels of approval just to get the ball moving, so to speak. So these are just some of the ways that large organizations go about sabotaging people's productivity today. Well, how then can a business build, as you say in the book, a time-rich culture? Sure. So time-rich culture, you've probably heard of this term, familiar with the term minimum viable product. I like to think of companies in terms of minimum viable bureaucracy. So bureaucracy is a dirty word, but if you focus on increasing the amount of value you create by doubling down on areas where you are generating revenue, by cross-selling, upselling, referrals, doing all that sort of stuff where you can increase revenue, but at the same time, what can you do to decrease the bureaucracy? Stop treating all decisions like big decisions. Bring down delegations of authority. So if you need to choose where to invest 500 that doesn't require a sign-off. You give your people that trust to make those decisions. Automation. Like if you've got rudimentary step-by-step process-oriented tasks, your people shouldn't be paid to do that. Like you can get tools, technology to automate that for you. Similarly with low value human tasks where you can outsource those to free your people up for more high value tasks. And then also just creating this culture of asynchronous communication, which is really big with automatic. They've got 1300 employees, you know, they head up WordPress, which powers 30% of the internet. But rather than relying on real-time communication where it's pick up the phone, it's an instant message, asynchronous communication is about people getting back to you when it suits them so they have more freedom to design their days and cultivate more time for flow and for focus. Well, it's a similar kind of question. How do individuals then, how do you recommend people take to become more time rich? Of course. So with people, there's a really easy acronym people can remember or a mnemonic, so to speak, called P-coats. So just think of the winter jacket. P, just prioritization. If you've got 10 tasks on your to-do list, chances are two or three of those tasks are way more high value than the rest of them. That's just the nature of the universe, the 80-20 principle. C for cut, eliminate tasks that don't add value. Oftentimes we get caught in the trap of just doing the same old thing because we've always done it without really reflecting on, is this adding value? So maybe on a monthly or even quarterly basis, just reflect on how you're spending your time, what's adding value, what's not. O for outsource, nowadays $10 an hour. If you've got $10 an hour tasks, but you consider your hourly rate $100 or more an hour, why on earth are you doing that $10 an hour task? doesn't make any sense. 
A, automate, tools like Zapier, Airtable, WebMerge. If this, then that can all help you automate rudimentary business as usual tasks. T, S, start your engines, which is essentially what are those things that you can do first thing in the morning to ensure you get off to a good start? So that is doing the hardest thing first. That is going for a walk because a walk has been shown to release BDNF, brain-derived nootrophic factor, which actually helps us work, helps us focus because our brain sees that as a fight or flight moment. So this is our caveman brain and it just wakes us up. So when people talk about eating lunch at their desk, when people talk about, I haven't left my desk in six hours, you think you're doing yourself a service, but paradoxically, by taking more breaks, going for a 20-minute walk out in nature, getting some sunlight actually does you a hell of a lot of good when it comes to being able to get your best work done when you are back at your desk. That's fantastic. To finish up with, and you've given a lot, any final productivity tips you could share? I will share one more, which is just on momentum. So as human beings, our brains are wired to conserve energy, and this is an evolutionary trait. So when we sit down to our desks in the morning, the easiest thing for us to do is to check email, to check LinkedIn, to jump on Twitter, see what's trending, all that sort of stuff. But it's much harder for us to sit down and start focusing on that high value, difficult task. But rather than seeing this task as, oh man, I've got to write a 3000 word article, maybe break it down into let me just commit to the first 100 words. That's easy. I'll just write the first 100 words. And what you find is once you write those first 100 words, it's so much easier to keep going. That's just a law of physics. It's a law of motion where the amount of energy required to move a ball is much less once that ball is already moving than when it's stationary. So just apply that to anything. It could be work. It could be even going to the gym. Just commit to going for five minutes. Once you're there, you've cranked out a few bicep curls or whatever you like to do. So much easier to stay there for another 30, 40 minutes and come out ripped and feeling better about yourself. That was Collective Campus CEO, Steve Glaveski. This episode of Business Essentials Daily is produced by the team at Sound Cartel. Thanks for listening. I'm Nicole Goodman. We'll bring you more B-Daily tomorrow. Follow at BE Daily Podcast across social media and head to bedaily.com.au for more from the Business Essentials Daily Podcast. Sound Cartel.